Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, everybody. Welcome. Welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. Once a week, we dig back into the archive and we find an old episode from years ago that most of you won't have heard and we hope you might enjoy. This is an interview I did with Sue Black. She's a British computer scientist, academic, entrepreneur, all sorts of amazing things. And she's instrumental in having saved Bletchley Park, the site of Second World War code breaking that you all know about, where Enigma was broken by people like Alan Turing, among others. Uh, This week, Facebook announced a large donation of money to help save Bletchley through and beyond the COVID crisis. And previously, when Bletchley was in danger of, of closing or being lost to the nation, Sue Black stepped in and helped launch a national campaign to raise awareness and money. She's an inspirational, remarkable person. So this is my interview with her from 2016. You can go onto History Hit TV. It's my digital history channel. It's like Netflix history. And watch several documentaries on there about Bletchley Park. We got people that served there. We got tours around there. We got a description of the Enigma machine and the primitive bomb proto-computer that helped break the German codes. That's all there on History Hit TV. They're some of the most popular documentaries we've ever made on there, actually. So please go and check that out. If you use the code 1066... 1066. You can get a month for free and then three months for just one pound, euro, or dollar for each of those first three months. So go and check that out after listening to Sue Black. Sue, thanks for joining us today. You're very welcome. And thank you. What a lovely introduction. Well, you're a total hero. You've won all sorts of awards, including inspiration awards and stuff. Rightly so. Let's, let's start with your interest in World War II code breaking and all that kind of stuff where where Um, did it come from well actually as a kid I guess I was a bit of a tomboy I loved my my favorite films that I watched when I was like seven eight nine were um second world war films (laughs) so stuff like well I guess like the the great escape stuff but also some of the British films Sue, there's nothing tomboyish about that. I'm currently uh, in New York. My daughter's beside me drinking her morning milk, and we're about to go to the uh, aircraft carrier USS Intrepid for a day of carrier-borne strike aviation, so it's going to be great. So, yeah, what kind of history do you like the best? Vikings. Vikings, you see? So she's a big Vikings fan. Um, but so, so, so there's nothing unusual about that. But what is unusual is the extraordinary lengths that you went to preserve some of our history. Well, how did you get particularly into World War II code-breaking? Well, I guess I am. Um, so my background, I'm a computer scientist. So I was invited up to a meeting at Bletchley Park in 2003. 
um, as part of the uh, British Computer Society. And I, I went to the meeting. And, and at that time, I think all I knew about Bletchley Park was that code breaking happened there. And um, in, in my mind, I think it was like maybe 50 old blokes kind of sitting around wearing tweed jackets and smoking pipes whilst sort of doing a bit of code breaking and uh, doing the Times crossword on the side was kind of how I, that's just what I had in my head about Bletchley Park. I don't know where that came from. Um, and so I went to a meeting there and after the meeting, I went for a walk around and uh, I walked into one of the blocks there and saw these guys who it turned out were rebuilding Turing's uh, bomb machine. And they were about halfway through rebuilding that. So I had a chat with them and found out that... Um, found out all about that, but also found out that more than 10,000 people worked at Bletchley Park during World War II, and also that more than half of them were women. So being a woman in computing myself, I got very excited about the fact that there were more than 5,000 women working there, and I'd never heard about it at all. Uh, So that kind of piqued my interest uh, right at the beginning. And then, uh, so I went away from that meeting and uh, eventually raised some funding because what I wanted to do was to record the memories of the women that had worked there for posterity. So I went away and um, managed to raise some funding to run a project called the Women of Station X Project, which was an oral history project, Uh, and we interviewed 15 women about what they'd done there um, at Bletchley Park during the war. And then it was at the launch of that project in 2008 that I found out that actually Bletchley Park were, well, in the, in the words of the director at the time, teetering on a financial knife edge. So I found out that, that Bletchley Park were having financial difficulties. And uh, I think it was then that I found out that the work that was done there was said to have shortened the war by two years. And at that time, uh, 11 million people a year were dying. And so the work that was done at Bletchley Park had potentially uh, saved 22 million lives and I thought to myself, and this place might have to close. Uh, that's ridiculous. So basically that kind of um, was when I, I started, started a campaign. It's a campaign where you unleashed the power of the internet to save Bletchley Park. And we'll talk about that in a second. But in the meantime, Bletchley Park has been so mythologized, hasn't it? I mean, what, can you tell me a bit more about what went on there during the war and just how, well, just how important, to talk about the women. What, what role did these women have? Were they allowed access to all the jobs that the men were doing? Yeah, I mean, as far as I know, I think it was a time when, you know, everyone was so desperate and and so worried, of course, you know, about what was happening during the war, that kind of any kind of hierarchies went out the window, I think. So, you know, some of the women uh, were code breakers. For example, Mavis Beatty uh, was uh, 19 when she worked there and she she ended up being uh, one of the major code breakers. Uh, She worked out what was happening around the Battle of Cape Matapan. And um, I think, you know, that was one of the uh, major major naval victories of World War II uh, that, that we kind of got wind of because of Mavis's code breaking. So you had more than 5,000 women uh, doing all sorts of jobs, most of them, um, I think, between the ages of 18 and 25. So, so young women, too. And uh, some of them straight from school or coming from university, and uh, doing all sorts of jobs all around the site. But lots of them were operating the machinery, you know, basically like, like the bomb machines which um, industrialised the code-breaking process. So many of the women were, were operating the bomb machines. So, so young people, men and women, both sexes, must have, it must have been so exciting, such an incredible place to work. You were doing something incredibly important and you were free from parental control and the, and the, 
sort of pre-war conservatism. I mean, when, when you've done these oral histories, was it? Do you get a sense of what it was like to work there? Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, I, I, th- I think you know there were some things that were probably very good and some things that were very bad in terms of. Um, you know, kind of being a young person away from home for the first time. So sort of on on the uh, the bad side, I guess, was, you know, because no one was allowed to talk about what they were doing. Everyone had to sign the Official Secrets Act the first time they arrived there. And, uh, we, you know, we had some of the veterans talking about the fact that when they went in and had to sign the Official Secrets Act, there'll be... Uh, a soldier with a, a gun in his hand and they you know they it was made very clear to them that if they said anything they'd be shot so you know that's probably quite scary if you're an 18 year old girl away from home for the first time uh, and also the fact that they couldn't talk about anything during the whole time that they were there so you know just imagine going to work doing your work you know eight hour shifts around the clock so working for eight hours not being able to talk to anybody about what you're doing at all um, you know, apart from kind of receiving instructions on what to do. Um, and then possibly, you know, being billeted out with maybe a family in Bletchley Village. And so going home to them on your own and not being able to tell them what you're doing either. So, I th- you know, I think some people had really difficult times. But I think it was more fun for the women that were billeted out at Woburn Abbey because then, you know, there were, there were a whole group of them, lots of them together. And um, I think, you know, that they had a lot more fun because they they were... Um, you know, they could organise parties or, or whatever, or, you know, just kind of hang out together and, and chat about things, not about what they were doing at work, but, you know, at least they'd have people around to talk to. And, uh, you know, I've heard stories of uh, some of the people that uh, were on their own, or particularly like the younger men and women that were on their own with families um, becoming depressed, you know, and there was kind of hints of, you know, that might some people might have committed suicide too. Um, because just imagine if you just can't tell anyone what you're doing at all uh, at any point in the day, it, it's it's just going to be very hard for you. Well, given, um, given that I spend most of my day telling people what I'm doing on the ridiculous amounts of social networks we've got these days, <laughs> that's a very different yeah. life. I can hardly imagine. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, now, um, listen, let, you're yeah. a computer scientist. I, I've got you here. Let's talk about this. What is the Enigma machine and why was it so brilliant? <laughs> well, um You'll get better explanations online than from me. Um, if you Google Enigma machine, you'll be able to see them in action and, and uh, someone who really knows what they're talking about. Um, but so basically the Enigma machines are the, are the machines that look a bit like old school typewriters. And um, they were used by uh, the German army to send messages to each other, so in, to encrypt messages. And so there, I think there were something like 20,000 Enigma machines being used during World War II. And basically, you you typed in your message, and what the Enigma machine does is it encodes each letter as another letter. So you so you would type in your message um, after having set up your machine the same way as everyone else who's got an Enigma machine, and then everyone else that that had the correct codes for the day would be able to to read your message. And I think that it's uh, I think the figure is that it's. Uh, the probability of being able to crack Enigma is 158 million, million, million to one. So that's one thing I do remember is the number. <laughs> and so, you know, the German military were all sending each other messages using Enigma. And in the UK, the code was cracked. But with the help from the Pol- three Polish math- mathematicians who I think had done about 20 years work on cracking Enigma uh, before the Second World War, and um, so they gave their findings to 
the people at Bletchley Park to help them during the Second World War. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, I'm looking for answers to the big questions about every aspect of life in the early modern period. Like, how did the memory of Anne Boleyn continue to influence the court of her daughter, Elizabeth I? How were fairies brought to life on the Elizabethan stage? And how did the arrival of male-only doctors threaten the lives of women? In other words, not just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Twice a week, every week. Subscribe now and follow me on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful. Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And also remember, when you're using messaging apps, they shrink the photos. You cannot print those out. You cannot blow them up. This is high quality imagery going to one of the most important people in your life. The Aura app is super easy to set up. It takes about two minutes and you're going to love it. There's free unlimited storage. Add unlimited photos and videos and invite as many people as you want to a frame. Right now, Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code Dan Snow at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Did they break Enigma because they were the most unbelievable mathematicians, the Poles, the Brits, other people, and, and sort of computer scientists in the entire universe? Or did they break <laughs> Enigma because they, they found the code books, they found the Enigma machine on that U-boat that the Americans made a terrible film about? Did they crack Enigma or did they just luckily sort of get the hang of it thanks to captured stuff? So they, as far as I can remember, they cracked Enigma based on the work done by the Poles. Um, but then what happened was a new a new Enigma machine came in in, I think it was 1940 or 41, and which I think had an extra rotor and some other added complications. And so um, it was then that uh, it needed to be rescued from a submarine. And I think there were, there were three guys that, you know, it's, it's such a shame that we didn't grow up hearing all the stories and learning the history of Bletchley Park when we were at school, because... All the people that are, were involved uh, in some really, really um, major and very brave events during World War Two, which enabled uh, the people at Bletchley Park to to do what they did. We, we don't know any of their names, and uh, and that's really sad. But there were three guys, yeah, that went into three Brit- British guys that went into a submarine, uh, which kind of sank as they were getting everything out of it. And I think one guy went down with the submarine. Um, and uh, uh, two escaped, 
But yeah, so so the film U five seven one is uh, a kind of uh, fictionalized account of what happened there, and of course it was Brits that did it and not not Americans. <laughs> yeah, tragically, it was it was um, HMS Bulldog, I think it was a destroyer, which intercepted U one one zero or something, and and it was absolutely amazing. They clambered on board a sinking U boat to rescue it. It's a wonderful yeah. story. Perhaps we'll do another podcast about that another time, everybody, if you're interested in that. Then talk to me about what, why is the Enigma machine. Well, as a computer scientist, why, do you, why is it important for you guys? Because the code-breaking side of it, there's the, there's the, there's the in- incredible intelligence. But what, what is it with Turing and programmable computers? How does that come into it as well? Well, so, so Turing did other work, I think, at Bletchley Park and then following on from Bletchley Park after the war. And um, so he came up with the idea of a universal machine, which has, uh, I guess, kind of given ideas for the for the basis of computers as we know them now but I think that it's, it's interesting really because it, I just find it very interesting in the in the way that we as humans work out how to take things to the next level I suppose because you know there was there were several people around in different parts of the world at the same time not knowing that each other existed coming up with ideas for for basic computers ar- around this kind of time like late 30s early 1940s so there was um, Konrad Zuse in Germany, and uh, I think it's Atanasov in Bulgaria, I think, and, and various people around the world coming up with ideas for how computers should work. And, and, you know, reasonably similar ideas. But, you know, it's like now we can chat to people around the world, so it doesn't seem such an amazing thing. But I just think, you know, in those times, I don't, I don't think they really knew what each other was doing. So how did they come up with the, almost the same ideas at the same time? How did you then mobilise this fantastic campaign to save Bletchley Park? Well, so um, first of all, after finding out uh, that they were having financial difficulties, I, I then I was head of department at the University of Westminster and I was on an email list for all the heads and professors of computing in the country. So I emailed all of them with a photo of... Uh, hut six as it was then with a, a kind of a blue tarpaulin over one end and said to everyone you know we need to save Bletchley Park told them the story and pointed them at a petition that was on the um, 10 Downing Street website at the time saying we need to save Bletchley Park and I was amazed when uh, quite quickly lots of professors of computing from around the country that had kind of written the textbooks that I'd studied as a student started signing the petition so that you know I just thought oh, wow, that's really great because if all of these guys think that it's uh, a good thing to do, I don't know, it just really gave me uh, confidence that it wasn't just me that thought it was an outrage. And then we decided to write a letter to the Times and uh, 97 uh, heads and professors of computing signed it. And then I thought, I need to get more publicity for this. So I contacted all the journalists that I knew, which at the time actually was only about four. Uh, But luckily one of them was Rory Keflin-Jones from the BBC. And so he interviewed me at Bletchley Park uh, and um, got that on BBC News and on Today programme. That was in 2008. And so there was, a, you know, it was a, a massive kind of splash in the news. I got lots of emails the day that it was on. But, you know, I'm, a, I'm an academic computer scientist. I'm not a marketing or a PR person. So I had loads of people contacting me that day. But then, of course, a week later, that was it. You know, the, there wasn't any more... Uh, interest kind of coming in so I was kind of looking around for ages speaking to everyone that I knew about Bletchley Park but also trying to work out how to get lots of people 
interested in Bletchley Park to know how important it was uh, and to try and kind of get them working together to to save Bletchley Park. So it was about six months later, I think in January, uh, like December 2008, January 2009, uh, when I started using Twitter and then quite quickly realized that that this was very exciting and, and here was a way or kind of a tool that I could use to reach as many people as possible uh, and get them to know about Bletchley Park and if they did know about Bletchley Park to get them to to campaign for Bletchley Park and so it kind of took off from there really I mean because Twitter works through search you know you you can put the term Bletchley Park into Twitter and you can find everyone that's talking about Bletchley Park everywhere in the world uh, you know like in a few seconds and that's amazing for campaigning because it means you can find everyone or as many people as possible that are, that are interested in the thing that you're interested in um, so I quite quickly kind of got in touch with lots of people that were in, interested in Bletchley Park um, and then basically the campaign just kind of uh, took off, I guess. I mean, I was always looking for people to talk to about Bletchley Park, looking for people to, to help Bletchley Park, looking, for, uh, you know, kind of promoting Bletchley Park and getting people to visit because the uh, main revenue that Bletchley Park uh, got at that time was um, through people visiting and paying on the gate. So we needed to get visitor numbers up. We needed to increase uh, people's awareness of Bletchley Park. And we needed to to help people to know how important it was uh, in our winning of uh, World War II and, you know, just such a a kind of fundamental place in our history that was was written out of history, really. But I mean, because it had to be kept secret. Um, But I guess my aim was to try and get it written back into history. And, uh, well, I think it's worked, actually, thinking about it. Sue, I'm so full of admiration. And I'm also jealous. I want to lead a campaign on Twitter. This is so exciting. Let's find (laughs) something else to say. And what state is is Bletchley Park in there? I haven't been there for about eight years. So if if I go today, what's it it look like? Is it in good health? Yeah, you need to go back. Well, so so, um, the huts have been renovated. So... Uh, I don't know if you remember, like Hut 6, the one with the blue tarpaulin over it. I was in there last week and, and Hut 8 where Turing worked. They've all been renovated. There's kind of like audio. I don't know what to, what the technical term for like the museum term for it is. But, you know, when you walk into the huts, there's audio playing of, you know, like someone uh, having a conversation, a 1940s type conversation. And, you know, like the type typing on the typewriter. And uh, it's it's very kind of evocative, you know. You walk in and just kind of people you can't see people, but you can hear them talking, and obviously stuff that's kind of related to what actually happened in those huts. Um, there's there's loads and loads of information in the huts about what happened there. There's more kind of like interactive displays and stuff there within the huts. The the mansion house was having terrible problems with their roof. So one of the first things to get fixed actually was the mansion house roof because it was leaking, and I think it had. 100 different um, parts to the roof so it was a very complicated uh, thing to fix and so you know like from the beginning of the campaign the money was going into things like uh, repairing potholes and repairing the roof but uh, latterly especially with 4.1 million that came in from the Heritage Lottery Fund a few years ago then the huts have been renovated uh, sort of tastefully renovated And um, there's a new uh, visitor centre. So one of the blocks that was uh, derelict right near the entrance is now the new visitor centre. So there's just so much there. There really is. I mean, honestly, I've probably been about 50 times. And every time I go, I learn several new things that I just, you know, didn't know before. It's just incredible. 
Well, Sue, what is incredible is this isn't even your day job. That's the thing that I find hardest to, to believe <laughs> fathom about you. You've managed to save a national treasure, an international treasure, what really should almost be a World Heritage Site. Uh, I expect it will be one day. And you uh, also have a day job. So I'm, I'm in awe. How do people get involved in the ongoing campaign? Bletchley Park, what, what, what websites, Twitter handles do you want to throw out there? Well, so I've, I've now written a book about the campaign. So if, if people are interested in that, um, my book's called Saving Bletchley Park. And the Twitter handle for that is at Saving Bletchley. And that tells uh, a lot of the history uh, of what happened there and kind of the, the two stories for like from the 1940s and the history are, and uh, today's story with the campaigning are kind of interweaved throughout the book. So there's two kind of narratives running through the book of like the, the um, 1940s and the present day and the campaign. Um, so that's available now on Amazon and all good bookstores. My Twitter ID is at Dr. Black, so I'd love to hear from anybody who's uh, interested in Bletchley Park. Um, I would really, really uh, encourage everyone to go and visit if they can, because as I was just saying, you know, there's just so much to see there. It's a 26-acre site. It, it, you know, it was fundamental in our, our winning of the war. There's so many amazing um, exhibitions. And, and just the thing I still love the most is to just walk through the park and just kind of imagine what it was like in the 1940s and, and just think about those thousands and thousands of people that worked there all that time. And um, I just kind of, because it's, you know, lots of times you go to museums and museums are great. I love museums, but most of them aren't in the actual place where the history happened. You know, so it is like walking back into the 1940s. And I, I just find that incredible. And the fact that there's the uh, National Museum of Computing on site too. So anyone with any interest in computing, uh, the National Museum of Computing is on site at Bletchley Park. And, and that's incredible because that takes you a walk through the whole history of computing too. So the, I mean, there's just so much there. <laughs> Sue and History Hit, thank you very much. Thank you. Hi everyone, it's me, Dan Snow. Just a quick request. It's so annoying and I hate it when other podcasts do this, but now I'm doing it and I hate myself. Please, please go onto iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts and give us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps and basically boosts up the chart, which is good. And then more people listen, which is nice. So if you could do that, I'd be very grateful. I understand if you don't subscribe to my TV channel. I understand if you don't buy my calendar, but this is free. Come on, do me a favour. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.